Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Hollywood Remixed, a topical podcast about inclusion and representation in culture and entertainment. I'm Rebecca Sun, Senior Editor of Diversity and Inclusion at The Hollywood Reporter. Here on our show, each episode is dedicated to a single theme that is centered around characters, identities, or storylines that have traditionally been excluded or misrepresented in mainstream culture. This week, in honor of one of my favorite shows, Dear White People, whose fourth and final season is dropping on Netflix today, we're dedicating the episode to Black college stories. I'm delighted to have Logan Browning, who stars on Dear White People as Sam, join us later to talk about how this series has represented a diverse range of perspectives and backgrounds among its student body. She'll also share a little bit about her own college journey. But first, we'll take a walk, a campus tour, if you will, through Hollywood's history of Black-centered college movies and TV shows. In researching this subject, I was very much guided by a column written by the late critic Roland Laird for Pop Matters in 2011. I'll link to his work in the transcript to this episode, which you can find at THR.com, and on my Twitter thread for this episode, which will be at the Rebecca Sun. To accompany me on the tour and add even more dimension to our discussion about college experiences for Black students, I'm happy to welcome yet another THR colleague to Hollywood Remixed. Evan Nicole Brown just joined The Hollywood Reporter earlier this month as our culture writer. She was most recently a New York Times fellow and has written for Fast Company, Atlas Obscura, and Bushwick Daily. Evan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always nice to talk to a colleague, especially uh, a new one, and get yes. to have a chance to actually kind of talk face to face. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be discussing this with you. <laughs> so, you know, with today's topic, you know, we were, we you know, when we were pre-gaming uh, to really get into the, get into the theme prior to hitting record, th we, there, we, we discussed the option of going linearly through the history of, you know, various black screen uh, representations of black collegiate life. But we decided on instead going topically and we'll just kind of pull in examples as, as they go. But first, because I think it's very important um, when we talk about media to realize that there's no such thing as uh, a viewer who is a blank slate. You know, everybody approaches a, a, a piece of art with the full context of their experiences. So if you don't mind, I'd love to hear about what your college experience was like. Um, you went to Bard, is that right? Yes. That's correct. Um, and coming, being a born and raised Angelino, going to a small liberal arts school on the East Coast in New York's Hudson Valley um, was a totally different experience from the urban and very diverse environment I grew up in. So yeah, in terms of being a black student at Bard, there was definitely a cohort of us. We were not at all in the majority. Um, but I think that really it sort of became it became important to find certain affinity groups and to find interest areas that could connect me with other students. Um, 
both beyond my race, but also within my own blackness, uh, because finding those those corners of the campus on my own, it became very apparent to me um, the second I got on campus that that wasn't going to be immediately available if I didn't look for it myself. So yeah, I mean, in terms of social life, I would say that it was very privileged and white for the most part. Um, and that was, I was familiar with that having gone to Harvard Westlake High School in Los Angeles, actually. But at the same time, there was definitely a yearning I felt all four years for just sort of the the house parties with with people of color that I grew up going to, and that that was really my safe space and my um, comfort zone. So, just sort of finding a way to be myself while also code switching out of as sort of a survival skill, I guess you could say, um, that really guided my college experience. I think the the first thing when, whenever we're talking about the subject of sort of like the black collegiate experience, that grouping very specifically, you know, has a, has a, has a delineation. There are, there's the HBCU experience, right? Um, historically black college and universities. And then there's PWI, um, which is a term that I learned after HBCU. PWI, for those who don't know, predominantly white institutions. That's the, that's the kind of school you went to. It's basically everything that isn't an HBCU. Like I went to a PWI, although like, I don't know. I was actually trying to think, I was like, is there, what's the closest to like a historically Asian college or university? And I could only come up with UC Irvine. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, that's, yes. That's that, an in-joke for it, right? The University of right. Civics and Integras, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's an in-joke. Um, so anyways, uh, so that's very different experience. Um, you know, there have been, there's been a good number of uh, depictions of HBCU life um, over the years. And, and, you know, a different world, you know, was, I think, for many, uh, much of the general public, their first exposure to, uh, to, to really what that was like for those who didn't attend HBCUs. That's, that was the late 80s. Um, I know that predates your life, Evan, <laughs> but, but, but that sitcom was really seminal. I mean, it influenced, I mean, Lena Waith named her production company Hillman Grad after the fictional HBCU, uh, Hillman College, in that um, School Days, Spike Lee's sophomore feature, you know, pun intended, you know, took place again on a fictional HBCU. Um, Spike Lee is a, is a very proud HBCU grad, Morehouse College, um, you know, and then going through like, you know, movies like Drumline, you know, things like that, that sort of really depicted the proud legacy of that. However, they're also, I'm just curious, actually, before I go on, uh, did you ever, when you were looking at colleges, was that part of, I don't want to imply that every black high school student like thinks, should I go to an HBCU? But just curious about whether or not that was an option for you. It was, I did apply to Howard and I got in. I decided to go to Bard instead. Um, I was really, and I was gonna mention this earlier and I think I could have had equally beautiful experiences at both places in different ways and for different reasons. But um, I was really attracted to Bard's literature program which is what I ended up majoring in. So I always knew that I was choosing my program and like the education I was going to get at Bard more than the community. I, I knew that I was going to lose something and let something go in that way by choosing a school like Bard over an HBCU like Howard. So that's something I negotiated with myself at age 18 and sort of made that choice that way. But I, I have several friends who have gone through the HBCU system. My grandfather and my uncle are both Morehouse men. So like it's, it's very much 
it was always in my universe um, and still is. But yeah, just kind of went yeah. the other direction. <laughs> and, and also even that decision process then, right? Like for some, you know, I, you know, I'm not black. I don't have a black family, but be, being able to see that decision process, should I go to an HBCU or should I go to a PWI um, depicted, I think it was, was it blackish? Um, they had a storyline when Zoe was graduating from, you know, from high school and looking at college searches. Um, so it, that's been kind of great to be able to see, get to see uh, characters wrestle with, like you said, there are pros and cons. There are things that you give up from your college experience or and also maybe if I'm not being too presumptuous, like burdens that you take on <laughs> in deciding to go to a PWI. <laughs> yes. you know? It's a trade off that really never ends, even in life. I feel like we're constantly making those like selections in in places we in environments we show up in and like different decisions and like workplaces and things like that we have to choose between as well so i guess in that way it's a good practice <laughs> to to go through that as a teenager when you're making that college decision but Absolutely. And so let's talk about then the PWI, uh, the different experiences that c come into play. And so just to give people some examples of um, of shows that depict the experience of black students in PWI, one, of course, is um, Dear White People. That That's very central. That, that decision is very, very central to the experience of the ensembles, uh, both in the film and the television version of Dear White People. I think Zoe ultimately ends up going to a PW Zoe from Blackish ultimately goes to a PWI because I think Ronish is a um, multiracial school. I think, and and also like uh, John. This is another film that is is a little bit older, but John Singleton's Higher Learning, you know, um, in ninety from nineteen ninety five, kind of goes into some of the tragic consequences of of the racial clash, the racial tensions that can take place. Let's start with I, I'm very curious about class and privilege since you mentioned that, and I think that that has, you know, that's something you can speak with incorporating your personal experience. You kind of alluded to a little bit that there is a, there's a kind of a perception of what people think when they think of a black student at a university. And, and that's, that's definitely, you know, that is not necessarily reflective of the reality. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Yeah. I was very, Going into college, I was very cognizant of my privilege as an upper middle class black woman um, who had gone to a major private high school in Los Angeles. I think that that it isolated me from some black students in college because there was definitely a difference in lived experience and in access to certain experiences and certain rooms and certain types of people in some ways. Um, but at the same time, it also... I saw very clearly how it made um, white students more comfortable with me because they felt that there was this sort of immediate common ground just through through knowing maybe the name of the high school I had gone to or hearing the way I spoke, you know, and like and just sort of like I think there's uh, just so many different sort of cues that are really sort of invisible, but that work sort of very that are used very insidiously in ways sort of on accident by people to signal that they feel more comfortable with you than somebody else or otherwise. And the thing that's really difficult about that is that it's really, I feel like it, the onus <laughs> um, isn't really on the person in that space to, to sort of explain things away, but it kind of ends up feeling that way because you want to, you want to feel at home with your own 
with your own group of people and you want to have that common ground and you do in many ways. But at the same time, um, I feel like there were certain ways in which I was comfortable with other students and white students on campus who maybe shared a different experience with me outside of race. So just like constantly navigating that. But I think that definitely from the high school I went to, a place like Bard, and even to be completely honest, a small liberal arts school like Bard, I think truthfully was seen as almost like a surprise for me to go to. Really, it would have been an expectation for me to go to an Ivy League. Um, so even just navigating all of those sort of like unspoken things was really interesting. But I definitely struggled with feeling like I wanted to really be a part of the black community at Bard. And, and I was to a certain degree, but I think that like my class privilege eliminated some of that um, understanding. And so that was like something I was constantly trying to approach positively and get better at and, and just like remain very conscious of my privilege and, and to not be sensitive surrounding those types of like divisions. That's something that I think, you know, and, and again, so we're speaking to the difference between the stereotype, which like I, I went to a I, I went to Duke, you know, so it's another like school that's considered, you know, a, a good school. And like you would hear like there's just this, this assumption like that the black students are either like they're on an athletic scholarship or they're on some other sort of scholarship. And and although, abs I mean, there are all sorts of students, and yes, you know, many students who, who are, who come from historically excluded populations who are there on scholarship, that's not necessarily the case. When I was doing research for this, uh, for this episode, I saw that because of what you just spoke of, the disparity between the stereotype and your lived experience, that there have been certain characters then that I'm curious whether would 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 especially resonate. Um, one of the earliest being, and again, I recognize the show is before your time, Whitley from A Different World. Even though A Different World is set at an HBCU, she was the OG, and I, I'm using this, I, I'm borrowing this from, there was a great um, story in The Undefeated a few years ago, uh, the original Bad and Bougie you know, lady, you know, she was somebody who came from a generational wealth, very fan, you know, light skinned, which we'll talk about too, you know, Jasmine guy. Um, and, and originally, uh, kind of painted as the villain. I think the, the, the sort of the first season of different, or I'm just going to give a history lesson here for those who don't know or remember first season of a different world, uh, not successful. People hated the show. People hated Whitley. She was like a snob, the light-skinned, rich snob, you know, at this school. And then, you know, and then and then it changed. Debbie Allen came on board. The show, behind the scenes, the show finally got some black creators, some people who went to an HBCU. Debbie Allen took the writing staff to visit Spellman and Howard and all these schools to be like, look, we got to get this right. Anyways, the show got a lot better. People ended up, you know, at loving Whitley and that character. But I'm curious, Growing up, did you have any representations of black girls who were like you, who were in an environment like you, or did you not? That's a good question. I mean, I think that in truth, I think it's really, I think the, the truth really lies somewhere sort of like in the gap between those two opposites. And that's certainly my experience. I feel like I've um, actually been sort of blessed with the best of both worlds and, and feel very comfortable in sort of more like bad and bougie, 
generational wealth spaces, but also like in in spaces that are less affluent um, and more underserved. And so like in that way, I don't think I really had representation. And I still think actually there's a lack of that representation in terms of somebody who can flow quite easily between both or multiple spaces. But the closest thing that I can think of right now is I do think that like, especially as an Angelino, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was like definitely showed kind of spoke to that contrast in terms of like Will coming from West Philly and, and moving into this mansion in Bel Air. But I think that just seeing like those characters navigate very preppy spaces um, and sort of have to apologize for their class privilege in certain ways and then in other episodes be totally ignorant of, of how privileged they were. I think that the Fresh Prince did a really good job at showing that. And also, I think on one hand, it's actually very important. And I think that we, in terms of Hollywood depictions of black life, that's not to say that, you know, I'm thinking also of like shows like The Cosby Show and Fresh Prince too, but just like seeing that depiction, especially at the time, I think was important. Even though it didn't show all sides of the black experience, I think that up until that point, there had been a lot of negative stereotypes um, that still persist about like, I don't know, just the crack epidemic in Los Angeles or just like certain depictions of like low income communities, hoods and neighborhoods and gang violence. That was a lot of what people were seeing about black life and about black schools. So even though shows showing the sort of like more like bougie, affluent, upper middle class, out of touch, black person, black woman, you know, they didn't do a great job at, at showing nuance all the time, but I, but I also think that like in terms of the, the sort of timeline of representation, they played a really important role because we needed to sort of see that type of lifestyle to, to do some work to sort of overcome the negative stereotypes that were dominating Hollywood. Let's talk about like code switching. It's, it's half a survival mechanism, but I think it's also like, kind of the beautiful side of it. Like, I kind of like code switch. I like knowing a different language, you right. know, whether we're speaking like, we speak literally or like figuratively a different language, a different cultural language. Um, yes, and I do have to say, to your point about code switching, like I'm thinking of the movie Drumline, which was like, I loved it growing up and it was huge in my circle of friends, just like seeing that HBCU experience and like Nick Cannon was so major at the time. Um, and just like seeing like, all the, the fun surrounding like that sort of experience, it's really interesting because I think, to be honest, I've at times felt a certain sort of jealousy that, you know, students at HBCUs don't have to code switch and, and get to live um, a more fully authentic life in that way in class on campus. So I think that that's something that like seeing those types of like college depictions through the years has really, um, made clear to me is that like, I think I would have really, it would have been a beautiful safe haven to not feel forced to code switch quite as much. But at the same time, um, there's, there's still, everybody's different, whether you're in a, in a black institution or not, everybody switches, you know, how they behave in the classroom versus not. So I guess that in that sense, it's, it's similar, mm -hmm. but. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad, I'm glad that you brought, and you brought something up in terms of just like learning about the appeal of HBCUs through, um, through media, because sometimes people like, in your case, you had family who had gone to HBCUs, but for those who don't, um, it's like, honestly, like 
media is one of the most important ways in which you can sort of recruit and promote. Um, I was looking up, I found an old article from the New York Times where there was a, I think it was a university president, Walter Kimbrough, who said that spanning from the time in which Cosby Show first hit the air in 84 to the end of A Different World, which was a spinoff of The Cosby Show in 93, um, HBCU uh, enrollment grew by 24.3%. And then after that show went off the air, it dropped, which outpaced enrollment at like general universities in general. But then in like the decade after A Different World went off the air, uh, that HBCU enrollment rate or the growth rate, rather, the growth rate dropped to 9.2%, right? So that's that's a drastic drop off. That's, that's interesting. And I love that point about how like those sorts of percentages are really guided by the cultural moment because... You know, for instance, I think for my grandparents' generation, you know, who were born in the early part of the 20th century and like around the Great Depression, for black people at that time, it was so important, honestly, in a lot of circles to actually preach assimilation and to like get your children into institutions that would legitimize them, quote unquote, and and give them a better life and allow them to secure more generational wealth. So... I think it's interesting that like we went through that time period and then as you say like in the 80s and 90s like there was definitely a push to like for various reasons in society you know historically but like I think that there was an interest in finding our common ground and and really preaching the beauty of brotherhood and sisterhood through historically black colleges and universities through like Greek life um, and sort of banding together in that way so and now again, I mean, I can't say for sure, but I feel like given the racial reckoning, given the all too obvious lack of progress um, in terms of police brutality and, and just other, other microaggressions and, and just um, violences that, you know, people are still going through. I think that I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, us turn the corner again on, on some of those enrollment percentages and, and statistics. And I think that like black people are looking for opportunities like HBCUs again to really just focus on our community and, and build up our strength um, amongst each other. Because I think it's like really obvious at this time that that's, that's where a lot of the power is gonna come from. And it's not to say that going to a PWI means you're a sellout or that you're not aligned with your people, but um, I think it's more and more, it's less important now to sort of whatever social capital is gained from going to a PWI, I feel like that's becoming less and less important um, and sort of like retaining culture is, is more so. Absolutely. And I, and I think you we saw that sort of that that trade off that you spoke of at the very beginning of our conversation play out in, in part with what was happening with Nicole Hannah Jones, right, when she had her tenure. Um, what was it? Her tenureship was questioned by the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. If you guys don't know about this, just Google it. It's, it's too complex of an issue for me to summarize quickly. But she ultimately decided to take her talents to Howard University. And, and in part, that was just in realizing the utter lack of of support, administrative support, board of trustees support that she would have gotten at UNC, which is like insane for, I mean, it's like if Nicole Hannah-Jones, one of the most esteemed and acclaimed and awarded, you know, academics and journalists uh, in the industry is treated that way, like what hope is there for the rest of us? And that's, I, I think that's a really, unfortunately, it's a really poignant example of how 
no matter what institution has accepted you, a place like the New York Times, the Pulitzer Center, <laughs> like with all of those things on your CV, at the end of the day, you're still a black woman. And she was, mm. I, I feel like um, university at UNC. UNC Chapel Hill. UNC Ugh. Chapel Hill. It was so UNC of them. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, I was a dude. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. No, but I... I think that that was a really, really um, obvious display of how no matter whether you go to an HBCU or a PWI or whether you work at a smaller local paper or a major news organization, blackness is still at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. And, and that's what she was being challenged on at the end of the day. It really wasn't about her credentials. It was really about hmm. her race. And like, I think that that just goes to show that... Um, you know, we still have a ways to go in terms of like, no matter how you slice it, um, representation is symbolic in a lot of ways. And, and it's not necessarily indicative of true progress. That's such a good point. Exactly. I think that that's as, as we go into, I think that this conversation about DEI is, is we're past that first chapter now where we're just talking about like, get a face on screen or, you know, get them in the room. And it's, it's about like how, what, how you actually think of these people, how you're actually evaluating their labor and their contributions, um, which is a much more subtle thing, you know? So in, in a way it, it becomes even harder to, to, to really get that right. Um, I want to wrap on something that you, you know, you, you were starting to talk about with, um, with the value of HBCUs and, and how media can really help, um, help promote, promote them actually, because, you know, your own decision, right. You had to make a trade-off, you know, what your experience was going to be like versus a, um, a school with a really, really great program a very legitimate choice. And um, I, I've been learning about how, I mean, a lot of times H HBCUs, I think it doesn't come to any surprise, are, are chronically under-resourced. And so as a result, many, many, you know, black high school students have to face that choice of like, the experience, do I take the microaggressions with the quality of this like academic offering or with the quality of this athletic program, you know? And so um, it really, be, and so lately we've been seeing uh, sort of, like you said, I think a commitment to invest and it, it's come from some folks like, like, like Chris Paul, who I, I interviewed him um, at the beginning of the year and he was um, he 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 was producing an ESPN Plus docu series about a basketball team at HBCUs. And Chris Paul, so I'm like a big ACC person because again I went to college in the ACC. Chris Paul went to Wake Forest, you know, a PWI, but now he's going back to finish his undergrad degree at um, an HBCU. And he was saying how one of the reasons why he had to choose. Wake Forest was because, again, like there are all these talented black, pro uh, you know, athletic prospects who like who go on to play for predominantly white institutions because that's where the resources are. And how can we reverse that? Right. Like it's it's a, it's the most ironic talent drain. Right. That exists because all of these PWIs, these athletic programs are making so much money off of like black athletic phenoms. Right. 
Um, and so we, we started to see that reverse a tiny bit. There were some very prominent, sorry, this is devolving into a sports podcast. There's some very prominent, you know, um, black prospects who, who declared um, for Howard and, and, and for other um, HBCU programs. So that's moving as well as like general philanthropists. I, I think Mackenzie Scott, who used to be married to Jeff Bezos, has made significant gifts to, to, to uh, well, I'm sorry, I, I, it's transformative is what Howard University called it, $40 million to Howard. That kind of investment really, really matters. And it, it allows, and it's not about saying like that everybody should go to an HBCU, but I think it's about choice. Right. I think that's a great point. And I know that historically, there were many more HBCUs that many of them have closed down or sort of enrollment has gotten so low because of the things you speak of that, you know, the choices became more and more limited and to the point where you mostly hear about the Spellman, the Howard, the Morehouse. Um, so I think just, yeah, building up a more robust network of HBCUs and again, like giving more students, helping students feel like they have more choice because if you can get financial aid at a, at a PWI, and there's less of that opportunity at an HBCU, that that really can make the difference for a lot of people making that choice, so. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, we always close with two very, very simple questions that I've now basically merged into one question because <laughs> I realized that that's what the guests want. But um, it's basically, it's, a, it's like a, is there either um, something, you know, thinking along this theme, is there a TV show or a movie that you would say like, ooh, that was that that depiction needs a do-over. It was problematic. And or is there something that you would recommend? Like again, thinking about our theme, a narrative that you think people should check out if they want to see something done right? Hmm. Wow, that's a great question. Um I can go first if you want to think think about it a little yes bit. please <laughs> okay uh so it's not my place to call out whatever was problematic i there's probably a lot of minor things too like just you know side characters over the years um but i don't know i think that the spirit of this theme isn't so much like it's it's there are tropes within it but i think that when you think about black collegiate narratives you mostly think about the stories that are centered on that um i'll do two that are kind of maybe a little bit easy. Okay, one is if for people who haven't had an opportunity to see Dear White People, I really, I love this show. And obviously the rest of the episode is dedicated to it. So it's it's obviously not a hidden gem, but it's it's so good at depicting the micro, the microcosm, like the tribes in college, this, the varied experiences of, People like, you know, all, all of the main characters in the ensemble are black. They could not be more different from each other, like in perspective. And, and it's just very, it's very nuanced. It's a super fun show to watch. I really, really love it. I think it really get it has the, it, it does what a great TV show based on a movie does, which is it just expands the universe, you know, and gives you more. Um, I like that. But I'll also say on the unscripted side, since I mentioned it, um, Chris Paul's docuseries, Why Not Us, it's on ESPN Plus, and it's about, it just follows a real basketball team, you know, from an HBCU that, I think it was North Carolina Central, which is uh, trying to, and I kind of had a pivotal season because it takes place during the pandemic, which was like, it was hard on, I mean, everybody suffered during the pandemic, but an HBCU has, who has to deal with like their, um, 
their seasons being canceled was was kind of catastrophic. Um, is catastrophic for Howard as well. So those are two. Those are those are two options. Nice. Yes, for me, I would say I really stomp the yard, which came out in two thousand seven. Um, is about like street dancing, but also like going to um, a fraternity enrolling in a fraternity sort of like step group and, and using sort of a natural da dance talent in that way to sort of like make oneself more of a, um, just like pursue that more seriously. And the reason I say Stump the Yard is honestly because not only is it a movie that like sticks out in my mind as being, it just feels very authentic actually. I feel like it was well done in terms of authenticity. I feel like I absolutely know people like the ones I saw on screen in that film. It wrestled with a lot of like different emotional like challenges, um, socioeconomic challenges. But I think what I love about it too is that dancing and the rhythm of the drums, like even stemming back to like our, the cultural history of African drums in our, in our culture. Like I think that celebrating dance and movement and the way that was portrayed in that movie actually was really, kind of profound, like at face value, it kind of was just like, oh, like a fun dance movie. But I actually think that the ability to see black joy in the midst of black struggle was really like significant to me. Um, in terms of a do-over, honestly, I don't know. I don't know if this is exactly answering your question, but I'm gonna throw it out there. I would actually like to see a film like Illegally Blonde, which like, has so many, you know, has become such an iconic film about like f femininity and feminism and and co the college experience and you know sort of like bimboism, but also like being very smart and intellectual and like not being properly understood. I would like to see a black woman in a lead role like Reese Witherspoon was in that movie. I think that actually that could be a really thematically what Legally Blonde represents. Um, I think if rendered in black, it would be really, really powerful. Um, and I actually can't think of an example of that type of college movie and, and like a, a, a woman, a young woman navigating those sorts of like nuances in terms of like being really attractive and sort of resting on that, but at the same time really caring about school and, and her career. Um, not many, uh, not many examples come to mind. So I think that yeah, being done, a black version of that type of film would actually be really great to see. <laughs> That's great. That's a good pitch. I mean, honestly, because it, yeah, you're right. Like it, it upends a, a, a long held stereotype and a trope and, and kind of like subverts our ideas of what like smart people should look like and act like and be about and care about. Um, uh, so yeah, I would like to see that. Well, you heard it here first, guys. If, if that adaptation... Um, ever comes to pass. Right. <laughs> Evan, <laughs> this was really fun to talk to you. Thank you so much. I hope you come back again. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. This was great. Logan Browning stars on Dear White People as Samantha White, the biracial documentary film student whose campus radio show Dear White People is often in the middle of many of the cultural and social incidents that take place at Winchester University an Ivy League-like, predominantly white institution with an active Black student caucus. Logan's other starring credits include Bratz the Movie, Tyler Perry's Meet the Browns, 
and VH1's Hit the Floor. Logan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I have binged a lot of different shows during the pandemic, and Dear White People was clearly one of the best choices I've made. Um, it's fantastic. Very, very dense. <laughs> Lots to talk about. I'm so glad. I'm glad that that made it on your on your watch list. I had a lot of things that, you know, maybe weren't as dense, you know. Uh, I watched uh, the, what is it, the Tiger, Carol Baskin. Tiger King. Yeah. Tiger King. Tiger King. Yeah. Tiger King. Actually, it is, it is kind of dense. It's pretty dense. It gets pretty dark. I actually did not finish Tiger King. My first pandemic watch was Love is Blind. And then I was <gasps> like, I, if this pandemic goes much longer, I don't know if I can do all I need to. <laughs> love is Blind is so did good. They have, a second, they have a second season. I'm obsessed. I love them so much. I need to know where they're going. They're uh, such a great show. I haven't watched that reunion. Yeah, the one year leader. I haven't watched that one yet, but I was like, I can't, I can't get sucked back into it. But um, <laughs> either way, in addition to my, in between my Love is Blind viewings, I watched all three, you know, released seasons of Dear White People. Um, very worthwhile for anybody who has not yet had the pleasure. But anyways, since, you know, since we have you here and since this episode is dedicated to stories about black college life, I wanted to start by asking you about your own experience, if that's cool. Um, you spent, I believe you spent a year at Vanderbilt before you moved to LA. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, I moved to LA when I was a kid, actually. So I moved to LA when I was 14 and then I did I was an actor oh, wow. professionally from 14 to about 17, went uh, back to Georgia, came back to LA, filmed Bratz the movie, then I went to college. And then that's when I went to Vanderbilt. And I, I stayed there for a year. And then my manager at the time was like, you should come back because you just did this film and you should build off of it. So I took a leave of absence, mm -hmm. which I didn't know you could do. But I tell a lot of young people who are always like, I'm going to take a gap year. I say, just go for the first year because it's so much harder to get back into school after you've left it, like just from a, um, application mm. standpoint. So yeah, I took a leave of absence. Mm. That's a good, that's a really good point. I feel like I know obviously a lot of, um, I went to a school with a really good basketball program. So we had a lot of like athletes who, who do that, right. They did, you know, one to three years. And then many of them now are like finishing, you know, up their degrees um, because you kind of need to seize that time, right? Seize that moment while you have it. Um, I'm curious if you don't mind, you know, why did you pick Vanderbilt? Oh, I come from a family of academics and my father went to um, Emory and Earlham and Harvard. He was a dentist. Um, and it was just from very young, going to a, a top 20 school was very important to me and my family. And so for me, I told my dad that was going to have to be top 20 academics and top 20 party and, <laughs> and top 20 sports. Uh, I needed I needed the collegiate experience. I went to like I looked at Cornell. I looked at Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> um, I but Vandy just it, from the outside looking in when I first visited, it was a beautiful campus. It seemed to have everything that I wanted. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's such a great school. And, you know, in the first half of this podcast episode, one of the things we talked about is how, like, we've seen this, you know, in some shows, um, but certainly in real life, one big decision that uh, some 
black college bound students face when they're looking at going to college is whether to go to an HBCU or a PWI, a predominantly white institution, um, like the school I went to, like Vandy, like Winchester University. Um, I'm just curious if that's something that you thought about, is that, was that anything that was on your radar? You know, it's so fascinating to me because it was on my radar, but I grew up in Atlanta. So Atlanta has like Spelman and Morehouse and Atlanta is very black. And the middle school, elementary school, high school I went to were very black. Like, I mean, I mean, they had a mix of everyone, but I, I, I never saw a lack of myself around. Um, and so I don't think that I had this inclination to go to uh, HBCU. Um, and I think that I, I do think my, my parents kind of steered me into the direction of like, okay, like HBCUs exist, but also, you know, the world is not all black and maybe you will have a, a more realistic, uh, entry into the world by going to any, you know, a school that has whatever the world has. Um, however, in hindsight, you know, all of my friends uh, and contemporaries who went to HBCUs got an experience, I think, that was incredibly valuable because when you are all black, when you're all kind of the same thing, you, you then just get to be yourselves. You get to just focus on being great and you get to learn more about yourself. You get to, you know, explore um explore so many topics that you you don't have it available at, at a regular school especially a pwi um so i i definitely think that not going to an hbcu was an experience i missed however i also loved going to vandy i thought you know i found you know we had a black student union at vandy i found my people there um and we were able to do the same thing on a smaller a smaller level yeah, I, I love that you mentioned that. And, and that's so true that what you said about, you know, sometimes with PWIs or schools that are multiracial is that, you know, then you kind of become identified by whatever your demographic is rather than being an individual. We see that um, on screen sometimes with you know, college set narratives. And I love college stories because they're like microcosms of, of the outside world, right? There's so many different factions, you know, interacting with each other, colliding with each other. But for sometimes for white centered narratives, it's like everybody else just gets into like, is it every other character is like put into a clique that's just a categorized by identity. Like that's the Asian table or like that's the black club and things like that. Um, I, what I love about Dear white people, one of the things is that even though it's set at a PWI, you have like from the very from the pilot, from the very premise of the show, you you see such a gradient of perspectives that like, you know, the black caucus is separated into factions, you know, um, and, and people have different approaches. I mean, I'm curious, do you is that kind of like what you were talking about, at, like what it was like for you at Vandy or even just like in your own life? Like, how do you like, do you like Sam sort of identify more with the black student union, the BSU approaches rather than like the cores or the black AFs or, or like Kelsey's Kelsey's group, um, African-American student union. African-American <laughs> student union. <laughs> I loved all these names. Um, 
you know, like you said, the really cool thing about having that Black Student Union and those Black Caucus meetings, I'm sorry, having the Black Caucus meetings, were that you, you got to see, well, you got to see that Black people are not monolithic, but in seeing that, you then can deduce that no group is. And um, no no group of people, whatever, however you want to identify them, all think exactly the same and or all want to solve a problem and, or reach a solution the exact same way. And uh, but that everyone should have a seat at the table to discuss and and have a meeting of the minds. And um, uh, at my school, we 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 weren't really like sitting. OK, our our black student union was kind of like just black caucus as a whole like it, it but it really wasn't about kind of it, it was very different from the show we kind of more uh we had events and you know ways to uh uplift each other like you know most at most pwis i believe at least at ours like we have black grad black graduation so we have a separate mm. graduation um oh just, that's cool i didn't know that yeah it's, it's just a separate black graduation be, to to give um students an opportunity to really shine and to have a separate ceremony and for your, you know, your family to really have that moment because for black people, a lot of black people like, uh, graduating college is still a big deal, you know, because we are, we are people who have not started at the same, uh, start point as, um, white people in this country. So, and a lot of other, I think, groups of people can identify with that. You know, if you're uh, if you're immigrant, if you're part of a group of people that didn't start at the same line. So, um, yeah, I think that's that. That was kind of how what what our black group at uh, Vandy was like. And I think it is similar in other PWIs. Yeah, yeah. And and what you're talking about, I mean, those those issues like the backgrounds that people come from. Um, I mean, those are what I, I watched the, I watched Netflix put up like a four minute clip of like everything you missed on Dear, it was like a four minutes recapping the first three seasons of Dear White People. And even though I watched all three seasons of Dear White People, that clip was like too much. There was like too much <laughs> to pack in. Like, so anyway, that's one of the many, many, many issues that's explored, you know, like the idea of not starting at the same starting point. Right. Um, so if you're confused by what Logan just said, just, just watch the first three seasons <laughs> of Dear White People. And that's one of the things that you'll be educated on. Um, um, you know, when, when we talk about representation again, because there is such a plethora of viewpoints, um, embodied by the the ensemble and dear white people at this point has become i think a true ensemble right your character sam um is 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 as much of a focal point as we we can say there is a focal point uh you know on the show but there's such an ensemble of characters and i'm wondering if you or your castmates have had encounters with fans that are not just about like oh um see, being able to see somebody who looks like them on screen but have you had experiences with people who are saying i I get to see somebody who ha who thinks the way I do or who takes a similar approach to life or who has dealt with a similar type of identity issue, you know, whether it's in school or outside of it. Um, any any sort of engagements or interactions like that? That's such a great question. And I feel like I I, I feel like um, maybe there are people out there who I haven't even connected with who 
who have a lot of those uh, those feelings. But I do, you know, I was on a walk the other day, ran into one of my neighbors who's, uh, she's in her 40s, she's white woman, she's Jewish, she has two kids, and she watched the show just randomly, and um, she felt like it was very educational that she learned from it, but she, she did say that, that she saw herself in, in uh, some of the characters, and I think that that was the whole point of, you know, Dear White People is because that's what um, every other person of every other ethnicity has had to do for so long in Hollywood, which is watch every other character. You know, if I watch um, Clueless, sometimes maybe I'm seeing myself in in Cher and not Dion, or like maybe if I'm watching, or maybe that's a bad example because I did have a, a black character to look to. But <laughs> if maybe, I don't know, um, it, or I'll actually I'll use this as an example, Saved by the Bell. If I watch Saved by the Bell um, and there's, you know, one black woman character that's at the high school, do I have to see myself in her? Is Does that mean that that is exactly who I am? Or do I, I actually, what I ended up doing was choosing which character I felt I wanted to see myself in. But the issue with that is that I feel that the world wants me to be this way. And it was like that with every film, with every television series. But, and the, and the other difficult part of that is, um, if say it's not a, a black person, say I'm watching someone who is Asian, is Muslim, is Indian, is dot, 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 fill in the blank, then my perception of those people in the world are shaped by that particular image. And that's the only one. And, and I, and, and the viewer will inevitably put people in a box based on that particular character because that's kind of how they showed up. Hopefully, Dear White People is an example of how you can um, flip something on its head and give everybody else an opportunity to see themselves in, uh, in any character. Absolutely. And, and I think especially even when you just look at the core the core uh, trio of black women on the show and how like Sam and Coco and Joelle, and you can extend it further and talk about Brooke and talk about Kelsey and, and things like that, but that they, like that dynamic um, is what is one of my favorites on the show. Like the sort of, you know, obviously Sam is very close to Joelle, but there's like a frenemies with a history with, with Coco. And these are three very different black women and they represent a lot of, a lot, not just like different, uh, philosophies and approaches, but even um, their their backgrounds and their histories are really different. You know, for you, if you don't mind speaking to this, um, you know, I think, you know, Sam is a biracial character, right? And we see the relationship and particularly that, but I don't want to spoil people, but Sam has a great relationship with her father, who is white. Um, and, uh, I'm just curious for you, like what that uh, experience has been like um, playing a, a biracial character. And um, I, I think you've shared this in interviews before that your 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 parents, your parents are both black, um, but your biological parents, you, one one parent was white. And how has that sort of has playing Sam um, sort of like taught you anything about about your identity or 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 maybe the other way around your inform your own experience has informed how you play this how you have played this character for four seasons 
You know, it's funny because I almost thought I couldn't relate to Sam in that way because I um, I am biologically biracial, but I don't identify as biracial. I just don't. It it was it, and and that's something that I'm still kind of working on and trying to uh, uncover and, and make a decision. I think that everyone gets to make that choice in their life how they want to identify. Um, but yeah, being raised in a black home, a black household. Like <laughs> the images I saw in my home, what we did, the art that we subscribed to, the the plays I saw, the music we listened to, the people I was around. It was just all black all the time. So I I never even that. Yeah, like I said, that was the thing I, I wondered if I would have a difficult time relating to Sam um, about or re- relating to Sam through because uh yeah she I, I have friends who are biracial and they do identify as biracial like if you ask them or if they're talking in a conversation they will say well as a biracial person and and I, i've never said that i or maybe i have but that's not like not in maybe more recently i may have said that i have no idea i can't imagine myself saying it but i just consider myself black and um I I think the thing that Sam has helped me to reckon with is that even though I identify as black and that's how I see myself, that the world and what I actually am are, I mean, like the the world will see me as different. Like the world will see me as this like light skinned girl with these light green eyes and, um, and be like, okay, you are (laughs) <laughs> what are you? The, the the number one question from season one of Dear White People, what are you? Which is an awful question. Never ask anyone that. Um, and <laughs> Especially if raised <laughs> in that way. Good golly. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's an ongoing process. Uh, I think that, I think at the end of the day, the thing it's helped me with is more so like, accepting that I am a light skinned black woman and, uh, you know, the effects of colorism and, and, uh, you know, that's, that's separate from being biracial, but yeah, it is, it is complicated. And that's why I have appreciated being able to play Sam on the show because I have been able to experience some of those complexities through her that I probably never would have on my own. Um, because I never had to reckon with having, you know, um, these uh, how growing up in a household with parents from two different ethnicities, I, I never had to deal with that. And I kind of got to live part of that through her, which is kind of strange. <laughs> yeah. So last week's episode of, of this podcast we talked about um, was, was about this movie blue Bayou that, that just came out and, and it's about transracial, a, a, a man who's transracial adopted. He's, he was born in Korea, you know, parents, biological parents are Korean, but he's raised in Louisiana by white people um, in the foster system, actually. And and your experience is different. You are black, you know, and you were raised by black parents. Um, but that aspect, you're right, how the world sees you versus your actual personal upbringing, you know, what that experience is like, um, I think is a very complex thing that I hope we get to see more stories, ex- you know, exploring more directly. Um, but thank you for, for um, you know, uh, answering that question and entertaining it. Before we get to, because I do have some questions about season four, which, you know, drops uh, today as this episode, as this podcast episode will drop. Um, So I haven't seen it yet. Um, 
But uh, thinking back over the three three seasons that you guys have filmed, is there an aspect, one of the gazillions of storylines and different issues that, that you guys have explored, is there one that is uh, really sticks with you as particularly resonant? And it can apply you know, specifically to this theme of college experience or, or beyond it, because again, I think Dear White People really was prescient in discussing a lot of things that affect, that ended up like, you know, that the outside world ended up becoming obsessed with. Um, I think the thing that I've learned and the thing that I will probably take from the show is uh, learning how to, it, it's just, it's compassion and empathy. It's really learning how to have compassion for others, compassion for yourself. Um, and also, okay, so Sam one of the things I love about her is she is so outspoken. She has no problem saying her truth and she does it with good intention to, to protect people. Um, and then sometimes she's wrong. And, uh, you know, she, I love that she's wrong sometimes and she gets to learn from that and evolve. Uh, but it's been interesting, especially as coming out of, you know, 2020 and how the summer was in 2020 and, you know, around, even around the election and just how divided we all were in this country, um, really the world. Um, I've learned that everyone <laughs> will be wrong at some point, including ourselves. And if we know that, you know, we are going to have someone tell us how we're wrong and it may not be a comfortable experience and we would hope that they would do it with the most compassion possible. Shouldn't we also do it to other people? And I think that's the thing that Sam didn't get in the very beginning of dear white people is, you know, she felt people were wrong and it didn't matter. And she told them exactly how she felt. Now I, I'm, I'm being a bit hard on her because I do think she came from an emotional place. And I think that it was an honest place. Um, but I, she was hard on people all the time and I, and it was important and it needed to happen. That's, I think that's why she was so emotional because it was, it was frustrating to come from, to have literally be biologically part of these two different things that are at war. Like it's, that means that you are at war inside and you come from the, the oppressive and the oppressed and it's, it is soul crushing and, and can, and just, that that in season one she has the monologue at the end of episode one and i think that 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 is the crux of uh sam and the crux of like where her pain comes from and i and in season four as we continue and or as you go through all of the seasons you see the different people that you know sam will become combative with and who will become combative with sam and by the end i think i sam has gotten the opportunity to show what it's like to be um, compassionate, even when people come for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, Sam has definitely had her run-ins and, and like multiple existential crises throughout, you know, the show. I mean, I just remember like how relatable it was. Like, what was it? I think you started season two, like basically getting sucked into the whole, like arguing with trolls rabbit hole, which, which was like a good cautionary tale. Cause I definitely had that like impulse and, you know, and then of course, um, meeting up with um, Tessa Thompson's character who was very similar to a real life personality that we don't need to name, but like, <laughs> you know, um, 
but but yeah, fascinating. Gosh, I love I love the character of Sam Brown. I'm so glad she exists and in in her fullness, you know, in her fullness, in her in her journey and her flaws. It's just um, a Sam. I just said Sam Brown. Sam White. Um, <laughs> you, just a beautiful. I love that. I love a, that you make slogan. You mix Logan and I Sam. Did. <laughs> I did. I love it. <laughs> I did. You know, inextricably tied, but but I hope what you would consider a great legacy because I think she's a she's a good legacy. Um, okay, season four. I just have to ask a few questions because I'm so curious. First of all, anybody who's seen the trailer realizes that you guys are going full on musical for this <laughs> final season. When did uh, your showrunners, when did Justin Simeon and Jacqueline Moore tell you guys that that was what you'd be doing? So, okay, my timeline is a bit off, as I'm sure everyone will excuse, because it was around 20, it was 2020. We were supposed to film in April. (laughs) So you can imagine. Oh, geez. (laughs) (laughs) You can imagine in March, we were like, um, what's happening? Where uh, are we getting music or no, no music. Uh, okay. (laughs) Um, so I think that was when we first kind of caught wind. And then we found out that in October we were going to actually do the show. So late summer, early fall is when we started kind of going in to meet with, uh, Jacqueline and Justin and, uh, we would do these kind of, I mean, we were already cast. You can't really get rid of us, which I loved, <laughs> but we did kind of have to do these mini auditions, <laughs> like these mini vocal <laughs> auditions. And I'm like, are you going to, are to you going to gauge gonna, how many numbers to give you? But also like, are you going to get rid of me? Like what happens? Um, no, they, they would never, I think they, they, they loved that process. I think that was very fun for them and fun for us. And and they made it work for every single character. They found a way to make every single character or every single actor comfortable and shine. And people who thought people who would say they can't sing are number one liars. And number two, they perform the heck out of these numbers. Um, but yeah, they told us to come in and do uh, because the whole season is 90s R&B yes. uh, covers. Gosh. They told us to come sing, but they just said, come sing a song from the 90s. So I did Bonnie Raitt, Can't Make You Love Me, <laughs> which is not R&B. Um, I'm sorry, but, but it's okay. <laughs> I was feeling it. And uh, Chris Bowers was in the room, uh, you know, Emmy winner Chris Bowers was on the piano and... Um, and it was it was really fun, and then and then we we had our entire table reads over Zoom, which was odd, it being our last season. Um, it doesn't it doesn't hit the same, you know, doing table reads over Zoom, and that final one where you're like, this is the last table read we'll ever have. Okay, uh, leave meeting. Like it just feels so yeah. odd. <laughs> Anticlimactic. Um, <laughs> yes, very. Man, that's so you were comfortable with, I mean, because obviously, you know, when you were cast as Sam, what, like five or so years ago now, um, singing on camera wasn't part of the job description. Uh, How comfortable were you, you know, had you performed um, musicals in in the past or was singing part of your repertoire already? I love singing. I grew up doing chorus in middle school and high school, which I was very serious about and I was very much a like goody two shoes in in middle school course, especially. Um, I had this incredible teacher, Mike Duro, who um, 
he 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 basically showed us that he took us on lots of field trips and he showed us that music can take you places that art can take you places um he did it in like a literal way but i i really absorbed it in a figurative sense as well and it's funny my little brother was not he's like 13 months younger than me he joined chorus because he saw that we went on field trips and then that my brother ended up being the one who really was musical and became an opera singer he plays the piano proficiently he went to school and got his master's for music um all from school i think that's that's my little like uh nod to why it's so important to put art in schools but um or keep art in schools. But yeah, I've auditioned for a couple of musicals here in LA before that, and a couple of musical shows, you know, that I've never actually gone far on. Like I always get like, you know, get to the callback and then nothing happens. But um, yeah, I've got, that's why I was very excited about already being cast and being able to do this musical. I trained with this wonderful vocal coach who's like very old school, which I'm, I'm just into older school coaches. I just, uh, I don't know. I just, I rock with the vibe. I think I'm an older soul. That's great. Well, now you've got some fantastic clips to add to, to your musical reel. Um, my gosh, I, I can't wait. I personally hate being spoiled. So I'll ask this next one, <laughs> this final Dear White People question very carefully, which is, <laughs> is there something that you can tease that we can look forward to? Like, it can be like a number or, you know, a, just, a, you know, a treatment of an issue or whatever that you just like had a lot of fun doing that you want to tease to us. Yeah. So, okay. So, so for my cinephiles and my dear white people fans who've seen season two, or if you take the time to watch the show and you end up seeing season two, there's an episode uh, episode eight, we do a bottle episode, which I had no idea what a bottle episode was before I did it, um, which is basically a two-hander. It's like a play. It's just two characters stuck in one place for the entire episode. You usually do it for, you know, financial restraints, but, or not, but we also did it for financial restraints. <laughs> um, anyways, <laughs> um, Sam and Gabe, uh, have this incredible bottle episode in the radio station. So, Sam and Gabe also in season four have an episode. It's not a full bottle episode, but they, you basically, you do track them because we're, we're going places, but you track them through the episode and they do have one big number together that is, a. it feels like it, it, it's reminiscent of the bottle episode. And that song I will also tease is actually not 90s R&B. But it is a very popular song, one I loved as a kid, one you won't know when you start when it starts playing because it's a different uh, arrangement. Um, but once you know what it is, you're gonna be like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> this is my favorite game. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ask for more. But I'll just ask one. I'll just ask one. Is it like is the original version of the song a duet? Boy group. <laughs> Oh, it's my favorite game. Okay, not even. I'm not even going to attempt to tease more because I don't want to get spoiled. That's amazing. I love the dynamic between Sam and Gabe. I, I don't know if it, can I say that I ship them. I mean, I do ship them, but again, I don't know I what totally. will happen with them in season four. So you know, it's oh. just such a great like. Well, that's the don't exciting tell me part about more. I'm not going to tell you, but the exciting part about I'm not going to tell you. The exciting part about season four is. We're in senior year, but we're also 15 years into the future. So you get to see where all the characters end up. Um, so you get to find out about Sam and Gabe. <laughs> 
Tantalizing. Okay. Okay. For my own good, for my own good, say no more. I will segue to our final two questions that we give to every guest. Now I give them to you guys both at once because I realize some people just like don't even want to answer the first one, go straight to the second. So two part question. First is the Hollywood remixed, which is, is there a, like a past TV show or a past character or a past movie that given this week's theme, which is black college characters or black college stories that you would order like a do over for. Usually that means like there was something sort of in hindsight that was problematic that you would be like, I would revise that. Some people have a trouble with that one, which is why I go ahead and give you the second one, which is the hidden gem. Uh, is there something like, again, same question. Is there a story character, whatever, um, that you would recommend as like, I really loved this growing up or, you know, this character meant a lot to me, or I loved this TV show. Uh, that is again, a black college character or a black college set narrative. Hmm. Well, you're right. The, ver the first question is hard because then you first got to go through the Rolodex of all the, you know, black collegiate shows. And then you got to go, go through the Rolodex of the characters and then you got to decide. Yeah. It's a good it's a good question. I'm going to really sip over, sip my tea over and think about um, because I'm sure it's, it's affected uh, my upbringing. Um, but the, I, maybe something will come to me. But if not, I'll, I'll move to your second question. And it, I, I'm cheating because it's. I think it's actually high school, but it's musical and it's black, and I feel it's appropriate. And it's Sister Act Two, and I love Sister Act Two so much because it's kind of um, it, it. It kind of calls back what I said earlier about the importance of art and music uh, in schools, and that it can take you places. You know, if you want to be somebody, if you want to go somewhere, you got to wake up and like, you got to wake up and make a difference. Like that's, I, I love Sister Act 2 so much. I'll watch it anytime it's on. I think they did that film well. Um, and yeah, I think it just showed how, and I think it showed how um, overlooked certain groups of people in the world can be. And that if you just give them an opportunity and you, if you give them art, that they can that that they not only will go places but they'll they'll make the places you go so much more brilliant like they'll they'll you know they just they'll they'll just shine shine all over the world oh my gosh i'm getting a little existential but um yeah i i can't think if there's any other that one i mean that was legit look anything where you know this was like Anything that is like the world's for much of the world's first introduction to Lauren Hill is going to be like a classic. <laughs> like that's if, you know, I think for, especially I think maybe for younger people who, you know, didn't grow up with that movie. Um, that's a, that's a good recommendation. That's a, it's, it's a, a really good, good one. movie. It's such a good movie. The, and, and it ties very nicely into the musical theme of Dear White People season four. So Two birds. It really does. And it's like the, it's the right era. It's the right genre. And it's like, um, and actually when you, there's, when you watch season four of Dear White People, there's a scene that I think is kind of callback to Sister Act 2, just like the, the way that it's all set up. So yeah, I won't continue to spoil things. Oh God. Okay. Well, I... <laughs> 
like, I guess, I hope people listen to this podcast episode, but if you choose to spend your time binge watching all of season four of Dear White People, which <laughs> drops today, I can't blame you. Um, that's probably what I'll be doing. No, I'm not going to binge it. I'm going to parcel it out <laughs> since it's, it's the last bit of Dear White People that we get. So I'm going to savor it very slowly. I think binging it in the beginning is okay because it's been a while since you've been away from these characters. And I, I mean, I love the show, but I do think that when you come back to it, you kind of got to like sit with the episodes. You kind of like, you got to get into the rhythm. Uh, It's like a song. It's like an album. It's like how people used to play vinyl. Like you would just play the whole thing. You wouldn't stop and go, okay, now that I listened to the first two songs, I'm going to go do my laundry and like you would listen to the whole thing. So I, I would say get I would say get on a roll with dear white people. Your musical analogies are so on point. Like you're oh so, <laughs> like <laughs> comparing it to a vinyl. Like okay, yes, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. That's a good point. That absolves me of the guilt of you know <laughs> binging it if if that's what I end up doing. Uh, but but you also yes because it is hard to keep track of everything. Like as somebody who again like I haven't skipped a single episode of Dear White People and I was try- I was like preparing for this and being like I completely forgot like mm-hmm. entire <laughs> chunks of it because it has been a while and because there is so much uh, that that you guys go through. Uh, well. We can't wait. Thank you so much for the gift of this show and and for your performance. It's just been such an amazing world to be immersed in. And so um, I really loved it. I appreciate it. And I appreciate your time for coming on here today, Logan. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you for saying all of those really kind things about the show. I have felt the same way about being on it. So I'm happy. Happy we get to share it with the world. Thanks again to Logan Browning and Evan Nicole Brown for joining us today to reminisce about their college days and talk about the relevance of Black college narratives to so many issues and subjects that we collectively grapple with in off-campus life. The fourth, final, and all-musical season of Dear White People is available on Netflix right now. And if you're like me and can't get enough Dear White People dish, you're in luck because our sibling podcast, TV's Top 5, hosted by my brilliant colleagues Dan Feinberg and Leslie Goldberg, has showrunners Justin Simeon and Jacqueline Moore on their show this Friday. Please stay tuned next week when we talk Hollywood in Hawaii with Doogie Kamealoha showrunner Courtney Kang. And please subscribe to Hollywood Remixed on the podcast platform of your choice so that you don't miss it. Until then... Aloha. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.